Good morning, folks. Great to have you with us this morning. Uh, just before we get into the next part of our Philippians series, let me pray and ask for the Lord by His Spirit to speak to us through His Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask You and we praise You that You'll be with us as we spend this time in Your Word, that You would teach us, that You would inform us, that You would form us to be more like Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we hear from Your Word. Stir our affections for Him and for each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What brings you joy? Or can I, can I ask it in another way? What do you think would give you joy? Maybe it's marriage or children or sex or money, career advancement, an increase in your finances. Is it the love of a sports team or seeing your team win a major trophy? Now, folks, all these are, all these are wonderful things and wonderful gifts from God. But we live in a world where people can have all these things and more and still found, find that their life is still moving along to that U2 anthem, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Last Sunday, I uh, watched the, the first two quarters, so the first half of the Super Bowl uh, in America, the National Football League, American football. Now, I know it's called football, but they use their hands, uh, but that's... Uh, an issue that we can discuss another time, but I, 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 you know, sort of enjoy it. Now, what I was intrigued by with this particular Super Bowl, the the quarterback of one of the teams is a, a guy called Tom Brady, and he was in the tenth Super Bowl, the tenth final. It's like the Champions League, the tenth final uh, as a player, and he was going for the seventh championship. So, for those that didn't watch it, he actually did. He, he actually won and won his seventh Super Bowl. What's really interesting about Tom Brady, many, many years ago, when he was 27 years of age, after winning his third Super Bowl, he publicly asked the question, is this all there is? And he also said, there has to be more than this. See, Tom Brady had achieved at that stage of his career the thing that he had set his heart on as a little boy that he believed would bring him completeness, bring him joy. And after the third Super Bowl championship, he was left with, is that it? Despite winning and achieving everything his heart desired, there was this absence of joy. Now, yes, I'm sure when he won, and when he won his fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, there was an element of joy. But clearly at 27, and I'm sure since, discontent has risen up because that joy has not been lasting. And the thing that's paramount in his mind is, is this it? Is this it? Can real joy be found. Whatever your circumstances, whether it's achieving things, having things, having all that your heart's desire in the world, or having nothing because you've never been given it, or you've lost it, if you have an absence of joy, your life will be marked by stress, anxiety, and discontentment. But this, despite being the tone of our culture, is not something new, folks. It's something that we can highlight, it's something that we can put our fingers on, but it's not something new for humanity. It's not something new for human beings. Writing in the third century to his friend, uh, Denantes, Saint Cyprian writes this, in the third century, this is what he writes. This seems a cheerful world, Denantes. When I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines, but I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide land. You know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road, pirates on the sea. In the amphitheatres, men murdered to please the applauding crowd under the roofs of misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world. Donatus, an incredibly bad world. See, he is saying... If I lift my head from my circumstances and have a real perspective of this world, it brings me stress and anxiety. Look at it. Look at it. It's a bad world, he says. 
But what's interesting, in his observations, and some, something stands out to him. So he goes on, he says this. Yes, yet in the midst of all of this, I have found a quiet and holy people. See, they have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. See, what he observed, and what is true, folks, is that Christian joy is distinguishable. It is a distinguishable attribute in a broken world, and it is lived out on the backdrop of a culture that is riddled with stress, riddled with anxiety, riddled with discontent. And Christian joy is a light that shines in the midst of that darkness. It is noticeable, it is contagious, and it often seems more clear when the circumstances suggest that the opposite of joy should be the driver of that person. See, this is a joy, Christian joy, that is not dependent on the circumstances, but is a deep and abiding confidence that regardless of the circumstances, all is well between you and God. It's knowing that nothing, despite the circumstances, despite what could happen, can separate us from him who has us and him who loves us. See, joy is something that is manifested and experienced from knowing the grace and peace of God that we spoke about in verses 1 and 2 last week. We come to a point as Christians, because I have experienced the grace of God and know that peace that surpasses understanding, I, I don't need to be the centre of the world. I don't have to be the centre of other people's worlds either. See, I can live for the one who saved me and I can love and live to save others before myself. And that brings joy. See, if your primary focus in life is yourself, you will lack joy. You will lack joy. As a kid, there was an acronym for the word joy. You had the J, the O, and the Y. And the J stood for Jesus, the O stood for others, and the Y stood for yourself. And the understanding of experiencing joy was Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. So the true lasting joy doesn't come from putting yourself primary in your thoughts. No, true and lasting joy starts with Jesus, the one who was selfless who saved others, so others come next, and then yourself. It's interesting, as we read through the letter, Paul is calling God's people here, the church of Philippi, to, to, to not have selfish ambition, to think of others more than themselves. And as we walk through this letter, we will also see that this letter is all about joy. The joy of knowing Jesus, the joy of serving others, the joy of knowing him and serving others for their sake and for the glory of Jesus, which also brings joy. And folks, the guy who was writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, who we looked at last week, despite being in prison, is the most joyful man in Rome. How is that? How is that? How is it that he, being in chains, being under house arrest, is the most joyful man and what we see in this letter, that that joy is flowing from a love of Jesus, a love of the gospel, and his love and affection for others is paramount as he writes to these people. And as he writes, he just seems to be increasing in joy. See, the book of Philippians is about unity. And it's about joy. See, folks, if you're asking the question, where can true joy be found? Hang tight with us. Because as we see more about Jesus, as we see more about what it means to live as citizens of his kingdom, as we see what it looks like to save other people and think of others more than ourselves in light of the gospel, we will see that that fosters a deep, lasting joy that remains in any circumstance. And in these verses today that we've had read for us, I want us to see five different things. I want to see that there's joy in prayer. I want us to see that there's, a, the joy, there's joy 
there's a joy in gospel partnership. I want us to see that there is joy because we have an assured hope. I want us to see that we, there is joy that stirs our affections. And I want to see that there is that joy that leads us to pray for spiritual growth for ourselves and for others. So number one, verses three and four, there is joy in prayer. See, here we have a guy who is in prison, whose circumstances are far from perfect from any stretch of the imagination. And what is his mind full of? What is his mind full of whilst he's in prison as he writes this letter? His mind is full, do you see that? Of thankfulness, verse three. He's thankful. He's full of gratitude to God, who for? For the church in Philippi. Despite his circumstances, Paul is praying for others and he prays for them. As he prays for them, he is experiencing joy. Verse three, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy. See, what, are the, what is the reason for his joy as he prays? His reason for his joy as he prays is gratitude for them. His reason for joy as he prays is actually his prayer is focused on him. His prayer is selfless. It's interesting in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine. The always in every prayer of mine is Levitical language. It is a picture of a priest standing before God, interceding on behalf of the people to God. See, Paul's prayer is not dominated by his own interests or his own circumstances, but rather his prayer is to intercede for others. And that leads to thankfulness as he thinks about them and prays for them that leads to joy. Folks, my question is, do you know the joy of prayer? Do you know the joy of it? Do you experience joy in prayer? See, notice the joy Paul experienced was because he was praying not for himself, but for others. Now hear me, it, it's right to pray for yourself. But in this context, there is a joy being brought as he considers others, as he is thankful for others, and as he intercedes for others. And joy is fostered. See, he gives thanks for them. He is grateful to God for what God is doing in and through them. Folks, I mentioned him last week as, as somebody that we, 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 um, we are in relationship with and somebody who was part of the, the history of our church. Vlad, who let, got saved here, left and is now planting a church in Timisoara, which is a wonderful, wonderful story. But this week I had the opportunity to interview him for a podcast that, that I'm part of. And for 50 minutes, he spoke, he shared about what God was doing in his life, in his family's life. He shared about what God was doing in and through him for the church and in Romania. And folks, as he was speaking, as I was interviewing, as somebody else was chatting to him as well, I was filled with joy. I was filled with thankfulness. I was filled with gratitude that moved me to be praying for Vlad as he was speaking. That actually has moved me to pray for him more often. Folks, every single week um, as a family, on a Tuesday, we pray, we pray for churches around the world. So people that we're in partnership with, people that we have friendships with. And I'm telling you, as we pray, as the kids pray for each one of those people, one of those families, one of those churches, that stirs gratitude in my heart. That stirs thankfulness in my heart. And that stirs a joy in my heart as we pray for them. But not only, not only is Paul's, Paul's prayer filled with joy because he is grateful, but he's also thankful for the evidences of God's grace in their lives. See, Paul later on in the letter needs to address an issue of disunity with the church, but rather than allowing that to be the focus of his prayer here and his interaction here, he, no, no, he sees the evidence of their grace and he celebrates them. Verse 5 he celebrates them as partners in the gospel and he celebrates them as those who are partakers, partakers of grace with him. See, what's on the forefront of his mind as he prays for others, as he prays for the church of Philippi, is the evidence of grace in their lives. Not a critique of them, not straight to the issue and straight to the problem, but rather look what the Lord is doing in your midst. And that fills him with thankfulness. It fills him with um, gratitude, it fills him with joy. It fills him with joy. See, he is quick to recognize virtue in them, recognizing that sanctification is a slow process. Do you see that in verse six? 
says there, God will complete the work that he has begun in you. That's great hope, and we'll look at that in a moment. But, the, but even in the context of this, Paul recognizes that what God has began, he will bring to completion. It is a journey. And often that sanctification, that process of making of us who God declares that we are, takes time. And there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. But Paul, as a leader in the church, Paul, as somebody of influence for the sake of the gospel, actually focuses on virtue and evidences of grace, not difficulty and down times. Folks, it's so important when we pray for others that actually we celebrate what God is doing in their lives. We go on a grace hunt. Rather than an idle hunt, let's go on a grace hunt. Let's find the grace. Let's show the grace. Let's pray the grace. Let's be thankful. And folks, that brings joy. See, selfless prayer diverts us from our own problems. That's not to say that we put our heads in our sand and we use prayer to ignore our problems. No, not at all. We need to live the reality of our situations in this real world. But actually, we are called to love God and love others. See that acronym of joy, Jesus, others, yourself. So actually, to pray for others, to actually intercede for others, to actually celebrate what God has done doing in others brings about joy. Paul is in prison, but Paul is buzzing and he's full of joy because he is praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ. This selfless prayer is good medicine for him. Good medicine for him. And later on in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, look, let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what Paul is doing in this prayer. And in the midst of this prayer, he is full of joy. See, the heart response of Paul when he thinks and prays for this church is thankfulness and joy. Folks, my question is, are you grateful for the Lord, to the Lord, for the people that he has put you in the midst of? Are you grateful to the Lord for the church that you're part of? Are you thankful to the, to the Lord for the gospel community that you are in? Do you pray for them? Do you intercede for them? Are you filled with gratitude when you think of them? And are you filled with joy? Folks, to think of others in the midst of our prayer brings a thankfulness for them, to God for them, and it fills us with joy. Number one, the joy of prayer. Number two, we see the joy of gospel partnership. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Now the word partnership in the Greek is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, which means fellowship, communion, deep participation. Now I think the word fellowship has become a weak word. For us, fellowship basically means a cup of tea or coffee after the service with a custard cream or a bourbon biscuit. That's basically what we think is fellowship. And actually, for many Christians, that's all the fellowship that they engage in. But Paul's joy comes from a deep communion that he has with the church, a communion that is experienced in these two ways. Number one, it is experienced through real gospel friendship. Real gospel friendship. Folks, Christian friendships are different than other friendships. They are. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue or have friendships with people who aren't Christians. No, we are to pursue friendships with non-Christians. We should foster friendships that we have with non-Christians. And as good friends, we should be sharing the good news of Jesus with our non-Christian friends. But in the context of the word koinonia, we do not experience that with non-Christians. See, friendship is often built on areas of commonality. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, said that a friendship begins when you have a, a you too moment, when you come to realize that somebody else understands or somebody else has experienced it or somebody else uh, likes something. You too, you like that as well. You understand that as well. And a friendship begins in that context. See, folks, as Christians, we have a deep communion and connection with each other. We have a U2 moment that cannot be experienced with non-Christians. See, we share in a common saviour. We are united in the same spirit and we are set headed for the same glory together, together. So the koinonia 
This deep participation that we have is something that we share with everybody. It is something that is true for us all as Christian people in the church. And folks, because of that, there is no place for they're not my kind of people mentality amongst Christians. Because they are. Because of Jesus Christ, Christian people are our people, are your people. And Paul here is celebrating this coin and this deep, deep communion that he has that is built on this beautiful gospel friendship, this beautiful you too, you too moment that is found in Jesus. And it fills him with joy that he has that with the church in Philippi. Now the flip side of the koinonia coin is, the other side of it is gospel mission. So this partnership, this koinonia, this deep communion is also deep participation, a shared responsibility. See, Paul is thankful for their gospel friendship, but he's also thankful for their participation in the mission with him. See, they, they are supporting him. They're praying for him. But not only that, he calls them to be united in the mission. He, later in the letter, he says, I want you to have the same mind. I want you to see, chapter 4, and encourage you that you are co-laborers in the mission. I want you to strive in the mission, side by side, recognizing that when you suffer, you suffer together for the cause of Christ. Folks, the partnership, the koinonia, the deep, deep communion participation, it is that that fills him with joy and thankfulness. See, it's not a passing chat or a quick read of a missionary support letter. No, it's a deep communion that is grounded in the truth of the gospel and defined by sacrifice, love, and service. Folks, he is filled with joy because he has gospel partnership that is defined by sacrifice, by love, by service, and a desire for that to continue, knowing that that will continue into eternity a desire to see that have longevity together. Folks, one of the greatest joys of my life is that I get to do mission with my best friends. One of the greatest joys that I have. My co-pastor, Paul Elms, is my best mate in the world after my wife. And I get to serve with him. And we have a deep communion and a deep participation as we are friends together. We have you two moments, but we also have gospel mission moments we are on mission together for the glory of Jesus Christ and that fills me with joy whether we have times that are up or times that are down the reality if the circumstances are difficult the reality is this we have a deep partnership in the gospel that brings me joy folks for 20 odd years 20 odd years and many years ago I spent hundreds of pounds and hundreds of hours traveling all over the country with my dear friend Steve Evans and we go, to, we go to conferences and we go to training courses and we'd be on buses and we'd be sharing rooms and we would be plotting and scheming and praying and being excited about the gospel going forward through church planting. Now, God took us on different paths, but now Steve and Sarah Evans are back with us at Cornerstone Church and I have the, the privilege of being in his gospel community that he leads. And it just fills me with joy when I talk to him and I see him to think that God has kept this friendship through the ups and through the downs and that brings me joy. Folks, koinonia is, is, is a coin which on one side we have deep gospel friendships and on the other we walk in deep gospel mission together for the glory of Christ. And folks, there is no one, no one more clear for me than my own wife. A deep friendship and a deep sharing and participation together in the mission gospel partnership. And folks, in the midst of gospel partnership, in the everyday of life and in the broader ministry of church, fills me with joy. Does it fill you with joy? Do you know the joy of gospel partnership? Deep gospel friendship, deep gospel participation. See here, if not here, are some ways, folks, if, if you don't have these things, if you don't have gospel partnerships, there are some ways in which the Philippians functioned and Paul with them that fostered that joy in the midst of gospel partnership. What did they do, folks? They provided for him financially and they cared for him. Folks, do you provide for other people? 
Do, do you care for other people? See, when you give to something, you care for it more. Agreed? And folks, we care for what we care about. See, if we care about this deep communion, if we care about gospel partnerships, we will care for those friendships. And we will give to those friendships, whether that's financially, or whether that's our time, or whether that's, that, that's, that's sharing and engaging and walking together. See, the Philippians provided financial help and care. And that fostered this friendship, this deep koinonia, and brought joy. See, they suffered alongside one another. They encouraged one another. They suffered alongside Paul. They were concerned for Paul. Folks, do you suffer with other people? Or do you keep people at arm's length? Do you get in the pain with them? Are you willing, willing to, to let them be a crutch for you? And for them to be the hands and feet for you as you seek to live belong? Or do you keep people at arm's length? Folks, are you quick to encourage in the midst of difficulty or are you quick to critique? See, God's people here in the church in Philippi, they suffered along with Paul, they encouraged Paul, but he suffered with them. He encouraged with them. They walked along, they got into each other's pain. They walked and limped along together, which was a sign of this deep communion that we have because of Jesus, but it was also a sign the joy was springing from their hearts. See, they prayed for one another. Folks, do you pray for gospel partners? Do you pray for your friends in Jesus? Do you pray for the people of the church? They saw themselves as co-laborers. Do you see the people that you are in your GC with? Do you see the people that you are in your church as co-laborers in the gospel? If you're a covenant member, you have covenanted to say that you do. Do we see each other? Do we look at each other? Do we say, I am a co-laborer? Or do we just see that somebody that happens to go to the church that I go to? Folks, that's a misunderstanding of church. That's a misunderstanding of koinonia. That's a misunderstanding of friendship. That's a misunderstanding of mission in the context of the gospel. See, folks, joy comes from Jesus and it also comes from his community. People who are gospel friends and gospel co-laborers on mission for Christ know this joy. They know it. So if you do not know this joy, if you don't have this deep joy, you don't have this deep joy when you think of the church, folks, then you might not know Jesus. You might not know him. Or maybe you haven't cultivated such relationships or participation in the mission that God has called us to. Joy in gospel partnerships. Number three, there is joy of assured hope, verse six. See, Paul is saying, I am thankful for you for your gospel partnership. And every time I pray for you, I'm filled with joy. That fills my soul. And this is all because of Jesus and what he has done. What a joy, folks, it must have been for Paul to see what God was doing in this church. See, God had given him the privilege of planting the first church in Europe, which is the church in, 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 in Philippi. What a joy it must have been to see this Busted up, broken, random group of people see, come to know Jesus, see a church form, and then to see over the course of 10 years what God did in and through them. What a joy that must have been. And what joy Paul had, as we see in verse 6, knowing that it wasn't him that started it, that it was God that started it, and that it was, and it's God who will bring all of that to completion. Paul has joy because he has an assured hope that it is God who will finish what he has started. And folks, that joy brings great freedom. See, it's a freeing joy to know that it is God who saves and it's God who preserves. Folks, so often we can be robbed of the joy of mission because we think that the mission is down to us. Folks, we can be robbed of the joy of friendship because we believe that in some way we are the ones that have to keep that friendship fostering at the real foundation level when it's God who will bring that to completion. Folks, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to have a front row seat to see God at work. And it is a joy to know that God promises to complete what he has started. Even when the journey is slow, 
even when the journey is long, even when it is incredibly hard, and it doesn't seem like he is at work, it is a joy to have that assured hope that what he began in someone's life, he will bring to completion. And folks, it's also a real joy to have that assured hope that the work that he is doing in someone's life is, see that in verse six, good work. It's good work. Folks, everything that God does is good. Everything he does is for his glory and it's for our good. And that is good work. Even when it's hard, God is completely good. Folks, I've walked through some difficult times in my life. And I, I, I want to be totally honest with you. The reality of joy has always been there. So even when I don't understand, even when I have to submit to the fact that his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts and my default would be to think differently and to do differently than him, I'm able to trust him to know that what he is doing is good. And what he is doing is part of bringing the work that he's began in my life and in the lives of others to the completion that he promises. See, I know that to be true because that's what the Bible says to me, but I also know that to be true because I've actually seen that happen in the lives of people and I experienced it myself. See, Paul would have also been full of joy because he was seeing and hearing about the transformation that was occurring in the lives of these people. That that good work that God had started, he was bringing to fruition in their lives and he would bring it to completion. See, there was evidence in that that they were the ones, despite having no money, who were supporting him and praying for him. They were partners with him in the gospel. They were supporting him in his proclamation. Folks, what a joy it is to see the evidence of God's good work in the lives of other people. What a joy it is, folks, to, to see people come to know the Lord Jesus, to be new in the faith and to grow, and for God to be using them in wonderful ways. We at Cornerstone Church have had the privilege and the blessing to see God do that numerous amounts of times over the last 11 years. Let us never take that for granted. Let us never take for granted that God gives us a, a, a look in to see his work, his good work in the lives of people. And folks, we've seen that in the midst of great blessing, but we've also seen God working in the midst of great tragedy and great suffering. To see people's faith standing firm and displaying a joy when, when their marriages have busted up, when their children have been sick, when they've lost their jobs, when friendships have been on shaky ground, you see the transformation of the work of the Lord who started that work, bringing it to fruition, and he also promises to complete it. But also, there is this wonderful joy, wonderful joy of this assured hope of that work coming to a completion, and actually coming to a completion on, as he says there, the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, the work that he began in you and in me will come to a completion on the day of Jesus Christ when Jesus returns. What a joy. So as we walk through this life, Paul is saying, we have a joy that we are heading for the work to be completed when Jesus returns, our Saviour returns, the one in whom has saved us. Paul is saying, let that joy shape your life. Folks, I am saying, let that joy, that Jesus will return, let that last day be the thing that shapes how we live, how we view. And folks, I am telling you now, knowing that Jesus will return and make all things new brings joy. It brings peace that surpasses understanding. The promise that one day, we will be healed. The promise of one day death will be no more. The promise of one day that Jesus will be here in all his fullness and he will wipe every tear and answer every question. In that day there will be no brokenness, there will be no sin, there will be no fear. Folks, what a joy. Let that shape our lives. Let that give us joy. That that is assured. He is not only doing a work in us, he's getting us ready for when he returns for us to be able to, to receive and to experience the wonder of his glory. What hope? What hope? Folks, Jesus will bring all that he is doing in us to completion. And that is a great joy. So allow that joy and allow the joy of the day of Jesus Christ, the last day, to shape us now. And let that assured hope manifest itself in a joy that penetrates through any 
circumstances. There is joy in that assured hope. Number four, joy that stirs affection, verses seven and eight. Folks, Paul was the greatest theologian that has ever lived. He had an understanding of Christ, he had an understanding of the gospel and the whole of scripture like no one who, had ever who has ever lived since. And folks, he had qualifications and academic experience and religious experience that would get him a preaching gig at any conference around the world. Paul was an intellectual, theological giant. But one thing I don't want us to miss is that Paul loved people. He loved them. Paul, yes, knew and understood the theological truth of the gospel, but he also felt it. And his understanding of who Jesus was, who he was, and who the church was, was manifested in love and affection towards them. See, we see that in verse 8. We say, we say, for God is my witness. For God is my witness. As I stand before God, he will tell you that this is true. Verse 7, I hold you in my heart. See, this can also be translated because you hold me in your heart. See, the relationship between Paul and the church of Philippi was heartfelt. It wasn't just sentimental. It was heartfelt, and we know that it was heartfelt because it was, it was manifested and lived out as Paul supported them. It was sacrificial, even says in chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. His intention was to sacrifice himself for their good in Christ that's how much heart felt and they provided for him with very little money from the very little money that they had to support him in his ministry it was right it was a heartfelt affection and he says look God is my witness I have a heart towards you and you have a heart towards me and folks he says verse 7 and it's right for me to feel this way it's right for me to feel this way because you were all partakers with me of grace. See, the word partakers is the same word, verse 5, koinonia, but this context it's used explicit, in explicit terms for partaking with him in the proclamation of the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 14, we'll go on to see that Paul says, I thank God that you shared in my troubles and that no church entered into partnership like you did with me. See, Paul has this heartfelt affection for them and it's right for him to feel that way because the, their lives reflected that as they lived and as they were on mission together as they reflected this gospel partnership and his love for them is seen in verse 8 because he says look I yearn for you with the affection of Christ verse 8 see the Greek word translates translated affections for us in the English refers to the inward parts of the body the bowels so when trying to describe deep emotion of love and compassion, this is the word that would be used. And Paul is saying, I have a deep love and compassion for you. But notice, he yearns for them, he longs for them with the affections of Christ. See, Paul's affections for them came from the affections that Jesus has, that Jesus had for him and that Jesus has for the church. See, it is the life and love of Jesus that defines and shapes Paul so important for us to remember this and it's the life and love of Jesus that that defines Paul's deep affection for the church and that deep affection and love is sacrificial folks Jesus loved us so much he was willing to die the affections of Christ manifest itself in dying for us and Paul also is willing to die for the sake of Christ and the sake of the church. See, Paul had a heartfelt connection with this church because of their partnership and their love for him, but also because of the love that Christ had for him. He was resolved to share this love that Christ had for him with others. Not just sharing about that love, but actually loving with that love. And in doing so, that brought him joy. That brought him joy. Folks, do you think that our lives as Christians is just to share that love? Yes, that is right. But we miss out on so much and we miss the essence of what it is to be Christians and in partnership together if it's just about sharing that love, but rather loving, loving with that love. Folks, we are to share it and we are to love with it. Do we do that? Do you do that?
Do you share the love of Christ in that you actually love gospel friends and co-laborers? And if, you're, if you love your gospel partners, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you tell them? And if you don't tell them, why not? See, like Paul, it is right for you to feel that way about them. And so often we can go, I don't want to go down sentimentalism. I don't want to come across mushy. I'm not all that emotional. No, it is right for us to feel this way about brothers and sisters in Christ. So why don't we share it? Why don't we tell them? See, walking with Jesus is not just knowing about him. Walking with Jesus is also feeling him and feeling his love. And from there, your love for his people grows and that brings you joy. Folks, as we walk through these verses, what we've seen is Paul's thankfulness and gratitude and and gospel partnership and assured hope and the affection for, 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 for these friends in the gospel that's brought him great joy. And even as he writes this letter, he slips into praying for them as he writes. So number five, we see joy that leads to prayer for spiritual growth. See, Paul is thankful. He has affections for the church in Philippi and that spills into him writing a prayer for them so they know his prayerful heart. And there are three things I want us to see about this prayerful, prayerful, joyful, prayerful uh, heart that leads to this prayer for spiritual growth. First, we see the petition. What does he ask? He asks, verse 9, that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Firstly, the love that he's talking about, praying for, I want us to see this, is not a love that is just static. It's a love that is moving. It's, it's a love that abounds, keeps going, moving, moving, growing, growing. And the love that he's talking about is a love for Jesus, but it is also a love for each other. A love for Jesus because he is the source of love. And Paul has already shared that his affection for them comes for, from an affection that comes from Christ. He wants to yearn to them with the affections of Christ. But it's so important, folks, for us not to dismiss that Paul is also praying that their love for each other will abound. See, the context of the letter is Paul is writing to deal with maybe issues of disunity and selfishness, and he's calling them to, to, to be united in Christ and to be selfless like Christ. And it's a major theme through the letter. So we don't want to miss that actually Paul, Paul's prayer is that their love for Jesus abounds and grows, but their love for each other abounds and grows. And his prayer is that this love abounds with, we see that in verse 9, knowledge and all discernment. See, the Greek word for knowledge is translated knowledge of the things of God, a spiritual knowledge, a spiritual understanding. So Paul is praying that this love will abound and abound through an increasing knowledge of the things of God, the things of God. Now the word discernment is wisdom. So he is praying that their their wisdom in how they love also increases. How they love. So Paul is praying that their love will abound more and more in conjunction with them growing in the knowledge of the things of God and growing in wisdom. Why is that? Because true love, folks, true Christian love is biblically informed. And true love is biblically and spiritually discerned. Another way of saying it is this. Knowledge is to know what is right and wisdom is to know what is best. Folks, I I love my wife. And the Bible, the things of God, the Bible shows me, gives me knowledge and informs me as to why I should love Sean and how I should love Sean as a husband to his wife. It shows me what is right. A knowledge of God, the things of God, the knowledge of his word shows me what is right. But Sean is different to another man's wife, so I need discernment to know how best to love Sean in the way that the Bible informs me. Do you see that? That actually there is a growth in knowledge of the things of God, but also a a knowledge of wisdom because people are different. People are different. Love is biblically informed, folks. 
So I want us to know that love is not a foundationless emotional mush. It's biblically informed that leads us to Christ. It leads us to have affections like Christ. And according to his word, we are to discern how best to love people because all people are different. Now let me clarify, this is not discernment on whether we love God's people or not. It's discernment on how we love God's people. So we see here, Paul's petition is that their love grows, a love that is biblically informed and that godly discernment wisdom is exercised in the application of that love. Folks, apart from a knowledge of God and his word, we will not love in, love in any way that glorifies God and blesses others. If we think that we can love, if we think that we can love without coming to the source of love, if we think that we can discern how best to love without coming to the one who gives us wisdom, folks, we won't love in the ways that God is calling us to. We won't love in the ways that God has, has, has asked us to. We won't love in the ways that God has made us to and saved us to. As Christians, we are to love others. That is not in question. The question as you read the word of God should be, how do I love people how do I love my friends? How do I love my family? How do I love uh, my kids? How do I love my co-workers? How do I love my brother? How do I love my sister in Christ? How do I love the church? How do I love my enemies? How do I love the people who despise me? How do I love? How do I love the people that, are, that I'm finding that I, I'm, I'm finding hard to love? The question is not, do we love? No, the question is, how do we love? And Paul's heart and hope and prayer is that they would abound in that love as they grow in the things of God that shows them what is right and they grow in discernment that shows them what is best. We see secondly there, the purpose. And what is the purpose of this abounding love? So that they can prove what is excellent, he says. The purpose of growing in love, knowledge and wisdom is so they can make the right calls as they live as citizens of God's kingdom chapter 3 verse 20 and live lives worthy of the gospel another way of saying it is so that they can put things to test so it's interesting in chapter 3 what we'll see is that Paul with the gospel with the things of God puts to test his old life compared to his new life this is who I was this is all the accolades that I had but I count that as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus he's able to prove what is excellent and Paul's heart is I want you to be able to live lives worthy of the gospel Prove what is excellent, test things in the midst of this broken world as you grow in love in conjunction with knowledge and discernment. See folks, the purpose of growing in love and knowledge and discernment is so we can discern what is best. So when Jesus returns, we can be pure and blameless. Now, let me be clear. We are pure and blameless if we have faith in Jesus. We are spotless. We have been washed clean. We are forgiven. However, as Christians, we want to strive to live lives that are pure, sincere. That's what that means. And we want to live lives that are blameless, lives that are without offense, lives that do not cause other people to stumble. So Paul is saying, look, if your love grows with knowledge and if your love grows with discernment, you will be able to test, be able to prove what is best so that when Jesus returns, you have lived a life of sincerity and that you have lived a life without offense. We want to live the lives that are pure and blameless because Jesus says that what we are. See, the, an abounding love like Christ, an abounding Christ-like love, folks, is biblically informed love. It is biblically informed love for him and others knowing that he is returning helps us live that out folks the reality is this on the day of Jesus Christ we will be taken home what a great day that will be but what a great that will day will be if we've been able to live lives that are pure and blameless I don't want to just bumble through this life I don't want to just struggle all the way and Paul is saying grow in love grow in joy where do we find that we find that in knowledge, the things of God, and using discernment, which is a spiritual gift of God, in the midst of knowing him, to love others 
and to love him. And whilst all this is happening, we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Our lives will display the fruit of those who are able to see what is excellent, who are able to live out what is pure, who are able to live lives that are blameless in the midst of the grace and love of God. Folks, the reality is this, we can't love and we won't love or live lives of sincerity and without offence if the roots of our lives are not grounded in Jesus. See, the fruit of righteousness willingly grows if we have our lives planted in Jesus, the righteous one. Paul is saying there, I want your lives to be grounded in Jesus because if they're grounded in Jesus, you will want to know him. And that knowing him and a discernment to live that will bring an abounding love that will help you live. That will help you live. See, the joy that he had for these people brought them to a point of praying for them with great joy for one purpose, for the praise of glory of God. And right at the end, Paul is praying all this for the glory and praise of God. And when God gets the glory, we experience joy. Folks, can real joy be found? Yes, it can be found in Jesus. Can real joy be experienced? Yes, it can. In and through gospel relationships with others who have joy in Jesus. Can real joy give us hope and assured hope? Yes, it does, because Jesus will finish what he has started and will bring it to completion and will come and make all things new. Does this joy stir stir our affections? Yes, it does. As we yearn with the affections of Christ, as we receive his affections, as we receive his love, and we want to see those poor things out, pour out. And folks, that joy leads us to pray for one another. It leads us to strive with one another. It leads us to seek to want to live lives that display that joy in the brokenness of this world. We sing a song at Christmas. Joy to the world, and there's a new chorus. Joy, unspeakable joy, an overflowing well that no tongue can tell no tongue can tell folks if you know the joy of christ you know what i'm talking about but some of you may not so i would encourage you come to jesus come to the one who had affections for you so much so that he died for you put your trust in him ask him to forgive you and you will know that joy that brings a peace that surpasses all understanding do you know this joy Can joy in this world be found? The answer is yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the joy that can be found in Jesus. And I thank you that joy is unspeakable. That joy is an overflowing well that we can't even describe in some terms, but I thank you that that joy is grounded in Christ Jesus. And that joy cuts through every circumstance whether they're times of blessing or times of difficulty, I pray, Lord, that each of us, your people, would know that joy, but also that uh, that joy for you and each other will be fostered as we pray for each other, we're thankful for each other, we walk together in partnership with each other, and I pray that our affections for Jesus and for each other will grow as a church. I pray these things for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.